0: Good day, everyone, and welcome back to our ongoing series called Killjoys, our study in the book of Philippians. Now, today we'll be starting the third chapter, Philippians chapter 3. But before we go there, I just want to say that this weekend is a really special weekend. It is the Palm Sunday weekend, and it'll be kicking off the Holy Week, which is really a time when we can pause and reflect on who Jesus is and what he has done for all of us. And I believe that the the passage that the Lord has reserved for all of us this particular day, this weekend, is perfect for reflecting on who Jesus is and what he has done. But just before we go there, do you know of people who like to collect things? And I don't just mean like a small collection. I mean big-time collectors. For example, people who collect huge amounts of Decor or watches or coins or cameras or old records. Do you know people like that? Or maybe you're one of them. Uh, it's okay. I'm just saying, do you know? Well, folks, the, uh, the extreme version of collecting is called hoarding. And when people begin to hoard, that becomes a problem. Especially in the context of today's pandemic, when people begin to hoard, when people begin to panic buy, This is what happens. Everybody loses. Remember last week, we talked about the killjoy of selfishness. And we said instead, we should be givers of joy and point people to Jesus. Now, why do people collect like the collectors we mentioned earlier? It's not really about the monetary value of what they collect. It gives them a sense of security and fulfillment. Now, why would people hoard? It's pretty much the same reason except except to an extreme. They feel that when they look at their refrigerator and it's full, or maybe their bank account and they still have lots of money, they feel a sense of security. Now, folks, I know that these times have been very difficult for many of us, some perhaps even more than others. And so I want to be sensitive and not pretend like things are just normal. But let me ask this question. Where should we put our confidence when it comes to our earthly life? Where should we put our confidence? Should it be in the money we have in the bank? Should it be in the connections of government that we know? Should it be in how much food is there in our refrigerator or in our cupboard? Well, folks, the Apostle Paul actually tells us the answer. In a latter part of the book of Philippians, this is what he said. Philippians 4.19, why don't we all read this together? And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What is this verse telling us? Now, this is just by way of introduction. The Bible promises us that God will supply all, not 97.45%, all of our what? Of our needs. Not our capricious collections, but our needs. And God knows what our needs really are. And the Bible tells us where we should put our confidence. Our confidence should be in Christ Jesus. Is that clear so far? That's why the title of today's message, let's all say this together. The title of today's message is, Put Your Confidence in Christ. Tell the person sitting or standing next to you, put your confidence in Christ. Now, just before we go to the passage of Philippians in chapter 3, that's... uh, intended for this day, let's first listen to a story that our Lord Jesus told that kind of points us in the right direction, meaning to say that this world is not just about our material blessing or our material goods. There is something far more critical that you and I need to be conscious about and face. In Luke chapter 12, the Lord Jesus tells us this story. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Meaning to say, our possessions should not define us. There's nothing wrong with having possessions, except they should not be the source of our ultimate security. And then Jesus goes on to say, And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. Now, don't misunderstand the Bible. The Bible never teaches against being rich or having money. There is nothing wrong with money. There are many rich people who are generously giving of themselves, even anonymously, to help people in need at this time during the quarantine. And then he talks about his land being very productive. That's also okay. You and I, even during quarantine, We need to find ways to be continually productive, put our time and energy to good use. But what was the lesson that Jesus was teaching here? Look at the continuing part of his story. And he began reasoning to himself. This is now the rich man who was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. What do you notice about the statement of this man? Look at how many times he says, I or my. Can you count? How many times was it clearly just about himself? Where was his security in this earthly life? It was in himself, in the things that he generated In the stuff that he hoarded for himself what is the lesson he went on to say i will say to my soul see he's not even talking to god he's talking only to himself i will say to my soul soul you have many goods laid up for many years to come take your ease eat drink and be merry so this man his mindset is for as long as i have lots of stuff I am secure. That was his source of his security. That was his mindset. But our mindset doesn't matter. It's not worth anything if it is not aligned with God's mindset. So what did God have to say? But God said to him, you fool. The word fool in the original language means somebody who doesn't make sense. Somebody who is very short sighted, didn't look far enough into the future. So God said to him, you're a fool. Why? This very night, your soul is required of you. Meaning to say, this, my friend, is your last night on earth. That's what Jesus is saying. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So folks, what is the bottom line in this story? Jesus said, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does that mean? Being rich towards God or not being rich towards God? Well, there are many things we can say about it, but this is the bottom line. Our greatest treasure ever in this universe is Jesus himself. And when we have Jesus in our life, we have everything we need. We have the most important things that we will ever need. Materially, we know God will supply all our needs through his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But more importantly, we have forgiveness. We have the assurance of salvation. We have purpose in life. We have the assurance of a transformation of our hearts from the inside out. Because that is what really matters. And when we have Jesus, we are rich in God's sight. So folks, remember the question we asked earlier, where should we put our confidence Not just in this earthly life, but the most important question is this. Where should we put our confidence when it comes to eternity? Did you ever think about that? You know, some people, they are so engrossed with just this life, they don't even give a thought about eternity. But the answer to this question is the same answer to our previous question, and that is, Put your confidence in Christ. So, folks, that is what this message is all about. Your understanding, my understanding of this message today, it is so critical because our understanding and our response to the truth of the Word of God will spell the difference between spending eternity with Him someday forever or spending eternity apart from God Forever. That's why this message is so important. What is today's killjoy? Can you guess? No, it's not just materialism. No, no. Like I said, this is about more important things, spiritual matters, eternity. Today's killjoy is this. Self-righteousness. You know, this is something that not many people discuss, but today we will definitely dig into this skill, Joy, and more importantly, how do we arrest it and replace it with what truly pleases God? So let's have a working definition of self-righteousness. Here it is. This is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. A term, self-righteousness, is a term that has come to designate moral living as a way of salvation or as a ground for neglecting the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, meaning to say self-righteousness is very simple. When we depend on anything or anyone else except Jesus for our eternal security, for our salvation, that is self-righteousness. You don't have to be loud or arrogant and point to yourself all the time. But if in your mind and in your heart, you're saying, my works, my religiosity, my affiliation with any institution, that is what will bring me to heaven, then that, my friend, is self-righteousness. Are we clear so far? Can I share with you an idea about self-righteousness and what we talked about earlier about hoarding? Here's the connection. Self-righteousness is like spiritual hoarding. What do I mean? So now we go into Philippians chapter 3. To learn from the words and the life of the Apostle Paul himself. Why self-righteousness is what? Spiritual hoarding. Let's go. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Let's all read together. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard to you. All throughout the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul mentions joy or rejoice or rejoicing. And again, now about midpoint through the through the letter, he says, I will remind you again, our joy is from Jesus, not about the things we have, not about the people we know. Again, nothing wrong with having things and knowing people, but they cannot be the ultimate source of our joy. Jesus is the source of our joy. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, What I'm going to tell you or repeat is a safeguard to you. The word safeguard means something that prevents you from falling or stumbling. Now, what was the Apostle Paul warning them against? Guess what? It was really about self-righteousness. So he goes on to say, beware of the dogs. Now, you and I, when we visit somebody and we come up to their gate, sometimes there's a sign that says, beware of dogs. Now, that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's using figurative language. So let's continue. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Wow. What is the Apostle Paul talking about? Okay, let me put it in table form. And hopefully, this will help. The Apostle Paul is saying, Beware dogs, evil workers, false circumcision. He was talking about a group of Jewish people called the Judaizers. Why were they dangerous? They would follow Paul all over the place. So, like a pack of dogs, literally, with their venom, their poison, their rabies of a false teaching following Paul and discrediting him all over the place. They would say to the Gentiles, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, it's not enough to just put your faith in him. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the Jewish law and many other requirements. In other words, they did not teach the true gospel. That's why Paul also called them evil workers. Because when anybody teaches a gospel that is not the true gospel... The true gospel is salvation is by faith alone in Jesus alone. When anybody teaches any other gospel, that person is an evil worker. Why? Because he's calling God a liar. He's saying that gospel is not true. I believe in something else. That's why they're called evil workers. And then he says the false circumcision. Why did he call them that? Because their focus was just on the external, superficial, They did not care about life transformation. They just cared about outward compliance to the law. And that's why the conclusion of Paul was they put confidence in the flesh, in themselves, in what they do for salvation. In contrast, Paul said, we, he says, be like this. We are the true circumcision, meaning to say we don't pay attention much to externalities. What we're after is a changed life, a transformed life by the Spirit of God. Then he says, we worship in spirit we don't worship superficially we don't worship idols we don't worship out of routine or obligation we worship the way jesus said we should which is in spirit and in truth and then he says we glory in christ our glory is not in ourselves our glory is not in how much we have our glory our honor our joy is in jesus alone and that the conclusion to that is we put no confidence in the flesh what's the message today Put your confidence in Christ. Are we good so far? Okay, let's go back to our passage then. Now, Paul will say, okay, let's forget about those guys. Let's talk about my own personal testimony. And he says, if there's anyone who knew what it was like to be self-righteous, Paul is saying, that was me. In verse four, he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. You'll see this word confidence repeated many times. The word confidence means you are so persuaded, you are so convinced about something that you will stake everything on that. You will rely 101% on that thing where you put your confidence once upon a time, the Apostle Paul said, "I put confidence in the flesh." What does he mean? Now, get a lot of this. This is Paul's, like his spiritual resume. Okay, this these were his at one point in his life his spiritual assets. Okay, he said, verse five, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Why was Paul saying all these things? And what did they mean? Okay, I like to put things in table form so that hopefully it will be easier to understand. So, these were Saul's former assets. The former sources of profit, spiritually speaking, in his life. Circumcised on the eighth day, what does that mean? Meaning to say his parents from the very beginning followed exactly what the original command of God was. For every Jewish boy to be circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Meaning he was not a convert from another race or from another religion. He was orig, legit. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the favorite sons of Jacob, the very first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews meaning both his parents were original legit Jews, not just one or the other but both of them. A Pharisee, a Pharisee was a revered religious leader of the Jewish people. Persecutor. He took it upon himself to persecute, to chase down and destroy the enemies of Judaism. That was his Fervor, his zeal, and finally, blameless, meaning to say he followed all the rules, he crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, as they say. But what do these things mean today? Well, let me try and translate them sort of. My suggestion is what these things mean are this was his preparation, his pedigree, his partnerships, his prestige, his position, his passion, and his piety. But aside from just being nice, because they all start with the letter P, so what do they really mean to us today? Let me suggest what these might mean. Nowadays, the possible translation of these things are, oh, you know what? My parents were in ministry. I was born for this, you know? I come from a long line of people uh, in in the ministry. Or I am a, a, a countryman of Asia's only Christian nation. Or... In the case of partnerships, I'm a member of a large denomination, or I'm a member of a mega church, or I'm a pastor, a minister, a small group leader, or I'm involved in many ministries, not just one, not just two. And finally, I do all the Christian stuff. I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm just saying, based on what the Apostle Paul said, based on what the Bible says, none of these things, none will bring us to heaven. None. That's why our confidence should be put in Christ alone. What happened to the Apostle Paul? Well, he was not yet called Paul at the time, but when he was on the Damascus Road, again pursuing the enemies of Judaism known as Christians at the time, well, he met Jesus. Or I should say, Jesus met him. And from that point forward, he was never the same. Because when Paul, at that point, when he understood salvation by faith in Jesus, Paul looked back at his former life, and this was his conclusion. I'm bankrupt. I am spiritually bankrupt. All of those things that I thought were my spiritual assets, all of those things, that I considered the sources of my spiritual profit that would bring me to heaven, that would make me righteous in the eyes of God, all of these things were worthless, spiritually bankrupt. Look at what else the Apostle Paul wrote when he wrote to his uh, protege, Timothy. He said, 1 Timothy 1:15 and 16, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. The word foremost is chief or principal. He was the head honcho of sinners. Of course, at that time, he never considered himself that. He considered himself at the top of the religious world. But looking back, understanding the righteousness of Jesus, salvation by faith in him, now Paul could say, I was foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So what happened? The Apostle Paul's life turned around 180 degrees from a person who was self-righteous, who had confidence in the flesh, to a person who believed in In Jesus alone for eternal life. What's the message again today? To all of us, put your confidence in Christ. Yes, for the things of this world, for our needs, but most importantly, our greatest need. Eternal security, salvation, forgiveness. So let's go back to Philippians. So what was now the conclusion of the Apostle Paul? He said in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So it, it's almost like he's speaking as an accountant. He's speaking something like, you know, I used to classify these things in the assets or the profit ledger. But now I moved all of these assets. I have reclassified them into liabilities or loss. Totally different point of view. And he says, more than that, I count all things. Not just his past life. Everything on this earth, the Apostle Paul is saying, nothing compares to the value of knowing Jesus. Look what he said. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, Even the most important things on earth, whatever they are, you think, what is the most important thing for you on earth? He's saying, compared to knowing Jesus, compared to the precious gift and blessing of knowing Jesus, Paul is saying, everything is rubbish. You know, in the original language, that word rubbish is a four-letter word I cannot mention today. Well, actually, I can It's dung, D-U-N-G. You thought I was going to say another four-letter word, right? But it's the same thing. I mean, that is Paul's way of saying there is no comparison. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to Christ. So what was Paul after? What did he discover? He says, And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, meaning no more self-righteousness. I'm leaving that all behind derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So never the righteousness that comes from myself on the basis of works, but the righteousness that comes from God by grace, by mercy, through faith in Jesus Christ. How can I sort of summarize what Paul was saying? Let me put it this way. This is what happened to Paul's life. Paul made the life-changing decision to move from self-confidence to Christ's confidence, from self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness. Okay, let me try and explain it even more so that I pray by the grace of God, it will be crystal clear to all of us. You know what this is, right? It's an ATM machine. Nowadays, there are long lines. At the bank, because not all branches are open all the time. Anyway, let me tell you a story before I go to the ATM thing. In one of my previous jobs, every month they would distribute, you know, HR or whoever, finance, would distribute the payslip, payslips of the employees. You can tell this was a long time ago, okay, payslip on paper. One employee was mistakenly given the payslip of the president. So, when this employee opened the payslip and saw the amount of money, he fell off his chair. Now, I can imagine if the president got that employee's payslip, maybe the president also fell off his chair. I really don't know. But that was a mistake. Let me try and paint a scenario to you, which will help explain this whole idea of righteousness that that comes from God and is my faith. Let's say that you were very, very concerned about your bank balance. As a matter of fact, let's say that you were sure that you had no more money in your account. In your mind, you're calculating, you know, oh boy, I'm in trouble. I'm pretty sure my balance is 0.0, all right? And then you go to the ATM and you slip in your card. And what pops out on the screen it's a huge amount of money. I mean huge, like you were dreaming. And of course, maybe the first thing you'll say is, uh-oh, this is a mistake, I need to give this back. And you talk to the branch, a bank person, and he says, no sir, that is not a mistake. There is actually someone who transferred that huge amount of money into your account. Folks, in a manner of speaking, That's what happens to us when we put our faith in Christ alone. We are spiritually bankrupt. Our spiritual bank account is empty, not even one centavo, because there's nothing you and I can do to earn or buy our way into heaven. Empty, bankrupt. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we humble ourselves. We confess our sinfulness before him, our need for a savior. What happens is God now will impute into our empty spiritual bank account the righteousness of Jesus, his son. And so when God looks at you, God looks at me, he will see not our former sinful self, but he will see his son. He will see the righteousness of Jesus himself. I mean, isn't that like mind blowing? But that's the love of God. That's the grace of God. So, what is the Apostle Paul's lifelong ambition? This is what he said. That I may know him. Uh, Wait. I thought he already knew Jesus as his Lord and Savior. That is true. Why is the Apostle Paul now saying, my heart's desire, my lifelong ambition is to know him? Well, folks, when you and I, when we get married... We enter into an intimate, exclusive relationship with our spouse. And while we may know her to a great extent at that moment, we will get to know her even better in the days, months, and years to come. Because that relationship gives us the intimacy that should not be available outside of that relationship. It's the same thing with knowing Jesus. Yes, we come to know him as Lord and Savior, but there is so much more about Jesus that is knowable and that we stand to gain and just be blessed when we get to know him more and more in a relationship with him. So the Apostle Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. By the way, these are our last two verses for our passage today, but they're very, very important. You and I need to listen to what the Apostle Paul was trying to say. Now, he's mentioned here being conformed to his death, meaning to say we need to die to ourselves continually so that in our life there will be less and less of us and more and more of Jesus living his life through us. But how does that happen? Well, the Apostle Paul said, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. What does that mean? Or maybe before we go there, why was that his ambition? You and I need to understand something. The more we know Christ, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the more we want to know him. And the more we know and love him, the more we become like him. Can I tell you a story? Long time ago in one of my previous jobs, I had a boss who tremendously admired the president of our company. And I don't blame him. I admire that president a lot too. Now, he was very close to the president. He became like a a mentee. The president began to mentor him for greater responsibility. And as the staff and I, as we would observe that boss of ours, you know, when he would give a speech, he would sound exactly like the president. There came a time when he began to dress just like the president. His clothes and the president's clothes were almost identical. Even his favorite ice cream flavor was the same as the favorite ice cream flavor of the president. You know, that's what happens when you really admire someone and you really allow that person to speak into your life and to transform you. Anyway, this was the context of what the Apostle Paul was saying. So what can we learn about Jesus and what can we learn about the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering? As I said earlier, this is Palm Sunday weekend. And 2,000 years ago, something happened in Jerusalem. It was called the triumphal entry of Jesus. What can we learn from this particular event? Well, this event was actually the fulfillment of prophecy by the prophet Zechariah. Let's read what uh, Matthew wrote about that. This took place to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So many, many, many years ago, the triumphal entry was prophesied in the Old Testament. And when it happened, it says your king is coming to you. It's true. Jesus is the king, the king of kings. But he was not a king who came to overthrow a foreign government. He was a king who came to overhaul our hearts, our lives. And he did not come that day as a king, you know, proud and arrogant and mounted on a, say, an Arabian stallion coming to wage war. It says he rode on a donkey. Gentle. He came in peace. And then it says the fall on a beast of burden. And this is just my personal reflection But not long after this crowd was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, they began to shout, crucify him. And in just a matter of days, Jesus was treated like a beast. He was treated like an animal. But that was the only way that he could bear the burden of our sin upon himself. And so when we know Jesus, we come to learn and know his gentleness, his love, his grace, and we become more like him in the process. Then the apostle Paul said, I wanna know the power of his resurrection. Why is that? Brothers, sisters, there is no power in the universe that is like the power of the resurrection. You see, Jesus did not just come back from the dead. He came back in a glorified supernatural body. There is no power in this universe apart from the power of God that can make that happen. Now, let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, Who? Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me say something about power. About two weeks ago, when the government declared the enhanced quarantine throughout Luzon, Amazingly, in a few days' time, all of the streets, at least here in Metro Manila, they were all clean. Imagine, EDSA, no cars. Divisoria, no cars. That's power. Man, that is power. It takes power to clear the streets of Metro Manila. But with all due respect, that power, it can change behavior to some extent. But it cannot change the heart. Only the power of the resurrection can transform you and me from the inside out. And we need the power of the resurrection, the power supplied by the Spirit of God every day as we ask him to fill us and control us to be more like Jesus. Finally, the Apostle Paul said, I want to know the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul loved suffering like, whoa, suffering, bring it on. No, not even Jesus loved suffering. He said, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. But suffering is part of life. And so I believe what the Apostle Paul was saying is that I want to be able to respond to suffering the way Jesus responded. And Peter tells us exactly how Jesus did that. First Peter two twenty three, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to Him, who judges righteously. Folks, again, I go back to two weekends ago when Pastor Peter asked us, "Are we grumbling?" Well. When we are under difficult circumstances, are we learning to be grateful instead of to be grumblers? And if, tre- if people treat us badly, like they did Jesus, or even just a fraction of that, do we get back at people? Do we threaten them the way they threaten us? You know, folks, the way Jesus responded to suffering is this. He kept entrusting himself to him. That's God, his father. Entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I pray that as we personalize this whole message about putting our confidence in Christ, we will continue to entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously, meaning to say, in simple English, he knows what he is doing, he is on the throne, he is in control. One last thing. That last phrase in verse 11, the Apostle Paul said, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The word attain here doesn't mean he will deserve it or he will work for it. It simply means he was sure he will arrive at that point someday. What point is that? The resurrection of the dead. And the Apostle Paul wrote about that amazing promise that's still to happen in the future. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, chapter four, first Thessalonians 4:16-17, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Meaning to say, all of the people who have put their faith in Jesus alone for salvation and have fallen asleep, meaning to say they have died physically, they will rise. They will rise first. And then, verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain. You know, when, when we read that phrase, then we who are alive and remain, it reminds us, this event, it could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. Even in the midst of this pandemic, it could happen. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be what? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. You can sense the confidence with which the Apostle Paul was writing all of this. But not because his confidence was in himself. But he learned how to what? To put his confidence in Christ. I pray we all learn how to do that. Put our confidence in Christ. Now my friend... I pray the Lord has spoken to you today and I pray that it is now your desire and your decision to put your confidence in Jesus and in Jesus alone, not only for the things of this life, but most importantly, for eternity, for your eternal destiny. Shall we pray? As our heads are bowed and perhaps our eyes are closed. If you realize that you have been relying on yourself, on other things, as far as your eternal destiny is concerned, or maybe you haven't even given it any thought. Maybe your thoughts have always been on the matters of this world. I pray that you will make a decision to look forward and realize that eternity is real and that the decision you make today will determine where you will spend that eternity. So will you pray to the Lord Jesus now? And will you humbly tell him, Lord Jesus, I have been putting my confidence in myself, in things, and I admit, I have not given much thought to eternity. But Lord, I realize that even during this pandemic, one of the messages, so to speak, to all of us is how frail And how short life is. And so, Lord Jesus, I make a decision in all humility and sincerity to put my confidence in you. Yes, I put my confidence in you, Lord Jesus, when it comes to my needs in this world. But most important of all, I put my confidence in you and you alone when it comes to my eternity. I thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth, dying for me, suffering for me rising again from the dead, and assuring me that in you I have forgiveness, I have salvation, I will have purpose, I will see transformation in my life. So Lord Jesus, my confidence is in you, not 99%, but 100%. Thank you for loving me. In your name I pray.